Well, this morning is going to be interesting because today I've chosen to preach your funeral. But what's unique about it is you're alive and you're here and you have opportunity to respond to the words of comfort that your loved ones would otherwise hear and have an opportunity to respond to. Uh, This morning we're in John chapter 14 and I thought, you know, these are words and verses that I often share at a funeral. Uh, to your loved ones or to my loved ones, or, but uh, we often don't hear them and, and, uh, and think about them much. But uh, at the end of John chapter 13, and I know we spent a couple weeks in John 13, but we're at the very end of the chapter, there's a, a transition. And Jesus says, little children, I am with you a little while longer. You'll look for me and where I am going You just cannot come. So I'm with you a little while longer. Those words really stuck out to me because they kind of refer to time. And there's a little bit of play of time in these verses. But but how long is a little while longer? You know, Jesus is down to the final hours, final days of his earthly life. But do you remember when you were a child, your parents would tell you to wait a little while longer? maybe a grandparent, maybe a teacher. Uh, Didn't it used to be true, like when you were little, that just one hour, let alone a day, felt like eternity? And you would sit there and you'd watch the clock and that would not help it, make it worse. To a young person, in terms of perception, a month or year represents a greater fraction of their life. A year to a 10-year-old represents one-tenth of their life, right? a year to someone older, as you get older, isn't it true that the years start to feel like months? Things feel more accelerated. A whole month can feel like it just went by in a day. And a whole day, it's like hours. Time represents a smaller fraction of your perception of time. Now imagine if you're God and you've existed from all eternity and you transcend time itself. A day is like a thousand years A thousand years is like a day. And the whole span of a person's life, uh, from our perspective, but how much more from God's, a whole span of a person's life, Psalm 9010. The years of our life are 70, or if by strength, 80. And yet the span of life is but toil and trouble. They are gone and we fly away. There's a hymn, I'll fly away, remember? We just fly away. Uh, From God's perspective, uh, we're like a mist, a vapor, a a flash of a camera maybe, or the snap of a fingers, or a nanosecond. That's how fast life goes by. You know, something else that's true as you grow older, not just time lapse or time warp, Uh, But you begin to hold on to people that you love a little tighter. Now, if you're younger, you say it like this. You say, I don't know how much longer we're going to be able to hold on to some loved one, right? But if you're the one that's getting older, you think, I don't know how much longer my family will be able to hold on to me. You change the, uh, the subject of that or the object of that. I remember a few years before my dad passed away, we were in a back room of his house and And my dad tried to tell me that he didn't think he had much time left. And at the time, I should have listened and we should have had a conversation. 
But at the time, I, I dismissed his concern. And I said, nah, you're good. You know, you don't need to be thinking about that. And we went on, you know, about the day. And then a little while later, another time, he tried to push some tools toward me. And I, it's not that I didn't want the tools or need the tools. I just said, I'm good. You know, you're going to be using those tools. But when a man is giving you his tools and pushing his tools away, you know that he knows something that maybe uh, you don't, right? How long is a little while longer? How long is that? For all practical purposes, it's now. It's now. Uh, We are never really ready to let go of or to be let go of. How do you prepare yourself or those you love for death? Uh, We hate even the thought of it, much less the mention of it. We defer that. We kick that can down the road as far as we can. It's uncomfortable. Can we talk about something else? But at the end of John, the thing that's remarkable about John is that we talk about the hard stuff and the most important stuff. And at the end of John 13, there's a pivot. Peter asks Jesus, "Uh, Lord, where is it that you're going? And Jesus says, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. You can't follow me now, but you'll be able to follow me later. And Peter says, why can't I follow you right now? I'll lay down my life for you. Peter so badly wanted to hold on to Jesus. And that's what we see at the end of chapter 13. And as we get into John 14, 1, there's a chapter break, but it's all one continuous thing that that we're reading here. So don't don't break it up too much in your mind. In verse 1, it's a continuation of the conversation. And we're told that the whole band of disciples were troubled by Jesus' words. Jesus tells them, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God and believe also in me. Have you ever felt troubled by death? If you haven't, you probably haven't lost a loved one or maybe felt threatened yourself. But, you know, we saw on national television how troubling death was when a ball player doing a routine tackle uh, died on the field and and had to be revived, uh, and the whole stadium fell silent. They couldn't even continue the game, and it was... Have you ever been troubled by death? Have you ever had your heart stopped by news of someone's death? Have you ever been troubled in that way? You might be surprised to know this. On numerous occasions, John tells us that Jesus felt troubled by death. One place was at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. John eleven thirty three. we read these words that when Jesus saw Mary crying and all the other Jews that were with her were crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit. And look right there. You might have missed it. He was troubled. He was troubled. Another word for the word moved is angry. That Jesus was angry at death. And angry at the reality of death and and angry at the advancement of death, but he was also troubled. And then John 11, 33, Jesus wept. Uh, John 12, 27, Jesus reflected on the cross that was before him. 
And it says in John 12, 27, Jesus says, my soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour. But that is why I came to this hour. I'm troubled by this troubling thing, but I'm going through this trouble to conquer the trouble, but it's still troubling. There you go. Uh, last week, we were in John 13, and we are talking, you know, Jesus mentions the betrayal of, of uh, Judas. John 13, 21, he became troubled in his spirit. Now, what I make of those verses is that Jesus is not indifferent to death or to trouble. That Jesus nor his father are somehow insulated from the pain and reality of something so consequential as death. If anything, Jesus is infinitely more attuned to death than we are. If anything, Jesus is profoundly more affected than even the most troubled among us. When there's a funeral, uh, you know, often every your friends will be here, if you did it at the church, and the immediate family, the, the first grievers will usually be in the front rows, you know, a spouse, children, siblings, parents, uh, and those are considered the first grievers, and they're, they're usually grieving the most heavily of all, right? But what we see in the Gospels is that Jesus... There's a row in front of the family even. There's a row in front of even Mary and Martha and all of Lazarus' friends. And, and Jesus is the first griever among all grievers. He's the weeper among all weepers. And he's the most profoundly impacted and in the deepest pain at the death of others. That's the picture that John paints for us of Jesus. There's someone, however, that our troubled souls can cling to in the face of death who will not let go of us, who will not let death snatch us out of his hand or the devil himself. John says in John 14, 1, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God and believe also in me. When you face trouble, you look for some sure ground in which to plant your feet and anchor your confidence and, and death is one of those places that people lose their confidence. But Jesus is saying you can find your confidence even in the face of death by believing, trusting in me. Anchor yourself in me. Believe in me. Now here's what we do, and this is what we're often guilty of, is we'll tell people something like that, but we won't give them the basis for it. We'll say, hey, believe in God. Trust God. You know, someone's grieving. We say, trust God. But we don't qualify our statement to tell someone to believe. Believe in what? Trust in what? Exactly how is Jesus relevant to me, my loved one lay dead, or, you know, maybe it's my life that I'm concerned about. What is the basis for belief? What is it in the face of death about Jesus that I'm to trust in that's to get me through this very troubling thing? And that's what's so special about John 14. And it's why you should have it open in your Bible because your death should be relevant to you. <laughs> and, and, and believing in Jesus and getting through death into life ought to be relevant to you and it ought to be relevant to your loved ones. And you ought to be able to say more than just trust God. You ought to be able to unpack that a little bit and give some texture to it and some substance to it so that it can really be encouraging and not just like a, 
you know, some kind of a, a nice saying or, or something that we just say uh, hollowly. But here's some substance to why we trust Jesus in the face of death. Num- number one, Jesus says that he is making room for us with the Father. He's making room for us. He says, believe in me, believe in God, believe in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? If I go away and I prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself so that where I am, you will also be with me. I will take you to myself. Whenever I hear the Father's house, I don't know about you, in this verse, in my Father's house, my mind immediately, just like that, jumps to heaven, to the mansion in the sky far away, as we sing in, in hymnology, right? That's where, we, that's where our mind goes. But I can tell you that the disciples' minds wouldn't have immediately leaped to the same places that ours leaped to. The disciples' minds probably would have leaped to the temple that they were in the shadow of as they met with Jesus. The only other time that Jesus uses this phrase, my father's house, was when he was referring to the temple. Do you remember when he cleansed the temple and he said, my house, my father's house ought to be a house of prayer for all nations? The temple was the house of God in the consciousness, in the minds of the disciples and everyone who was a contemporary of Jesus. And they knew the nature of the temple and and, and what it looked like. Now, the temple is a symbol of heaven on earth. That's how Jesus uses it in this passage. Uh, He's describing the temple, but more than the temple, he's describing heaven. But think about the temple for a moment. How is the temple to be a symbol of heaven? Well, first and foremost, the Father's presence, God's presence, fills the temple. That if you want to encounter the reality and presence of God, you want to be at the temple, in the temple, as intimately connected to that temple, that place, as possible. But do you realize that in the temple there is also many rooms? And so Nehemiah was invited one time to stay in some of the different rooms, or he was pressured to stay in some of the rooms in the temple. He says, I'm not qualified, I'm not worthy, I'm not authorized. So in the temple, there's many rooms, not only the presence of the Father, but to enter the inner rooms, the inner regions of the temple, you had to be ceremonially clean. You had to be washed. You had to be ordained to do that. Uh, You had to be of Levitical uh, standing and, and background, and there's a whole elaborate schema of what would qualify you and who and when and how. Now, what did Jesus just do in John 13? He washed his disciples' feet. He cleansed them in the way that they needed to be cleaned. And he just told Peter that unless I wash you, unless I clean you, you have no part in me. Uh, And he just told the group that one of them, Judas, was still unclean. And so this metaphor of a place that you have to go to that has many rooms, you've been cleaned and prepared for something of a greater reality It's like the temple, but it's greater than the temple. In Psalm 84, uh, there's different psalms about the temple and and how people felt and and how they want to be connected to God's presence in the temple. Psalm 84, 
The, the temple is a kind of typology of heaven on earth. So how lovely is your dwelling place, the psalmist write, Lord of armies. I long and yearn for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh cry out for the living God. So you can imagine a person going to the temple, going to worship in the courts to, to connect with the presence of God and, and to feel that reality. And then the psalmist looks up at this glorious temple. Verse 3, even a sparrow finds a home. Even a, a swallow makes a nest for herself and a, a, a place for her young in this temple near your altars, God. Uh, my king, how happy are those who reside, who nest, who abide in your house, who praise you continually. You know, Jesus is telling the disciples that he's going to prepare a place for them in the Father's house. The Psalm 84 sparrow perched in her nest with her young, sheltered by God's not just temple, but God's very presence would no longer be their envy, it would be their reality. God's going to create a place. I'm going to prepare a place for you that's kind of like that. Psalm 84 place for that spirit in the presence of God. You know, the disciples would have thought about that metaphor. They would have thought about the temple. If they didn't jump there first, they might have next jumped to the Feast of Tabernacles. Long before the physical temple was built in the book of Leviticus, it's heavy reading, but God gave these elaborate instructions of how to build a, a, a tabernacle, a tent, a dwelling for God to be present among his people. And there is a tabernacle, and there is inner rooms, and there's all the different uh, measurements and, and designs and everything that we read about. But God was going to travel with his people. His presence was going to be with them, a pillar of fire by night, a, a cloud by day. And whenever the Levites would set up this tabernacle, this tent, the 12 tribes of Israel would camp by tribe in little tents, little booths, little tabernacles before the great tabernacle. And so here's God tabernacling in the midst of his tabernacling people. And, and everyone's in their booths, in their places doing this. The Feast of Tabernacles, the Jews continued to celebrate even in Jesus' day. They would go to the temple and they would, uh, they would set up tabernacles to remember that moment when God camped among them. And, and now Jesus is saying, I'm tabernacling you in the flesh. I'm God in the flesh, camping and tabernacling among you. And, and Jesus is painting a picture of God's presence among his people. And he says, I'm going to the Father to make booths, to make shelters, to make rooms, to make places for you, not just temporarily in an earthly sense in God's presence, but eternally in God's presence forever. Tabernacle 1.0 was an impermanent kind of dwelling. Uh, moved around with the people. Temple 2.0, temple in Jerusalem, God's presence there. But the real temple is, I'm going to prepare a temple, a place where both us and God's presence, we can abide together forever. And if I go and I prepare that place, I'm going to come and take you to be with myself, to myself, he says, so that you may also be where I am. 
If God shelters the sparrow, how much more will he shelter us? If God, not a single sparrow falls to the ground without God's knowledge, how much more of us? If God provides for the little sparrow everything he needs, how much more for us? If God makes room for the sparrow in his temple, might God make room for us? And the answer is yes. Absolutely, I'm going to prepare a room for you. Isn't this powerful? There's a lot more going on there than what we might see on the surface. In every good house, there's also a table. And so in John 13, it's kind of a backdrop that Jesus has cleaned us and he's prepared a place for us at the table. And we partake of the Lord's table with the Son uh, in whom the Father abides. And, uh, and when we partake of the Lord's table as a church today, we're anticipating a heavenly feast, a kind of permanent ongoing feast, a, a wedding banquet, eating a meal in God's presence forever in the place that Jesus is preparing for us. So believe what? Believe that Jesus is preparing a place for God's presence to dwell with us and for us to camp out forever. Now, we're reading John 14 in English because that's an English translation, but in Greek, the Greek, sometimes when you look at the Greek, you can see word plays where uh, there's two words that maybe sound alike and look alike and they play off of each other. And you can see that in the Greek. When we translate it into the English, sometimes that stuff's lost. But in the Greek, the word for place is transliterated Monet. Not like the painting, a better, better than the painting Monet. Monet, M-O-N-E is how it's translated. And interesting enough, the Greek verb for resting, nesting, remaining, abiding, you know, that little sparrow in the nest, that idea, uh, the Greek word for that is meno. And this is how similar they are in the Greek. And when you translate it, so we're going we're gonna to meno in a monet. That's our hope. Jesus is creating a place for us to meno in a Monet. I'm going to get it backwards before the end of the sermon. But, but Psalm 23, 6, the Psalm of David. Only goodness and faithful love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The house of the Lord. The, the temple is just a shadow of the reality of heaven. The tabernacle, just a shadow of a greater reality of a place where God and his people abide and men know forever. That's what we believe in. That Jesus is doing that for us in the same way that God did it for Israel um, and so forth. Now, there's more. Not only is Jesus creating a place, but he is making a way for us to that place. He's making a way for us to that place. So verse 4 of John 14, Jesus says, you know, where, uh, you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas says, no, not really. We don't know where you're going. <laughs> where's this temple at? Where, where, where's this place? And he also says, how can we know the way? So we know what the place is. How do we get there? And Jesus tells him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one is going to come to the Father except through me. Now, they would have understood that. Uh, a lot of people think, hey, 
by default, not only do I go to heaven, but I can just waltz right into God's presence, no big deal, you know, and I don't need to be clean, I don't need to be worried about anything, right? But Jesus is saying, I'm the way into that place of God's presence, of God's eternality, of dwelling. So in other places in John, Jesus said, I'm the gate, I'm the door, same thing, I'm the way. And it's not like we can plug the Father into Google Drive and have it, you know, navigate our own way to heaven. Take me to the Father's house, you know. Even if we could navigate our way, would we be authorized, permitted, ordained to enter in to that house? Just because you make your way to the temple in Jerusalem didn't mean that you could get into the inner rooms and camp out there and stay there and extend your, your own welcome there. Didn't work that way. Just because you could get to the tabernacle, same thing. Uh, just because there's a place, a room, a booth, doesn't mean you have access to it. Jesus gets us through the door. In fact, he is the door. Through Jesus, we gain access to the Father. Otherwise, we would do it on our own, wouldn't we? And we clearly can't do it on our own. Jesus grants access. Uh, Jesus' word of comfort to Mary and Martha, John 11, verses 25 through 26. We gain access by faith. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? We gain access through belief in Jesus, through trusting Jesus. Not that he's just preparing us a way, but that he's making a way, that he's the way maker. A way has been opened up in Jesus to pass through death into everlasting life. Now, wait a minute. How do we know that Jesus has access to this place? We imagine and assume we all just have automatic access, but Jesus is saying, no, you have to get through it through faith in me and trusting me. How do we know that Jesus has access? Well, as proof of passage, literally, Jesus offers his death, burial, resurrection, and his ascension to the Father. So Jesus has said repeatedly in the Gospel of John, I came from the Father, all right? I've come into this world, and I am leaving this world and going to the Father. Now, do you know anybody that's ever come from heaven and come into this world and gone back to the Father? You've seen, that you know. There's people that, you know, I mean, I don't know of anybody that I saw do that. But Jesus says, I came from the Father, I've been among you, and you will see me go back to the Father. And when you see that happen, not just my death, not just my burial, not just my resurrection, but my ascension to the right hand of the Father, you're going to know. And I'm telling you now ahead of time so that you'll know and you'll believe, more importantly, that I am the way, the truth, and life. That though I die, yet I'm raised and I live. Though you die, yet you can be raised and live and be in this place. And if I go to that place, I'm going to come back and I'm going to take you to be with me so that you'll be where I am. Now, Mary Magdalene, after Jesus died and was raised and made appearances in John 20, 17 at the end of this book, 
Uh, she sees Jesus, and naturally, what do you do when someone you love is there? You cling to him. You want to hold on to him. And Jesus says to her, since I've not yet ascended to the Father, uh, go to my brothers, tell them that I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Don't cling to me. I've not yet ascended. Don't cling to me. Uh, there's something that you still have to see. Your basis of belief isn't just seeing me now. It's what you're going to see me do, and that is to ascend. Go get all the other disciples. You all need to see this. The basis for belief isn't just that Jesus prepares the way, but he goes to that place and promises to take us back. You know, through the years, I've let go of some very, very dear friends. And I find the strength to let go knowing Jesus has made a way through death onto life. And I trust that to be true because when they destroyed the temple of Jesus' body, he raised it up three days later. And if he can build that kind of a temple of his own body back in three days, he can build any kind of temple that I need as a dwelling uh, for eternity in him. And Jesus is proof positive of our hope of not just heavenly dwelling, but of heavenly access. He is the way, our way maker. Now, there's more. Uh, Jesus mentions that a basis for belief is that the Father abides in him. That he is the Father embodied and dwelling uh, in human flesh. That, that he's God incarnate. And, and, and Jesus tells Philip, you know, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And, and, and what exactly does he mean when he says truth? We know what he means when he says way now. He's going to come back and make a way. But he's saying, even right now, I'm truth. I'm Father. I'm God to you. If you know me, you would also know my Father. And from now on, you do know him. And if you've seen me, you've seen him, Jesus tells Philip. And Philip says, whoa, show us the Father. That would be enough for a basis for a belief. And Jesus says, have I been among you all this time and you don't know me, Philip? Now, what's peculiar about those words is you get the impression that the Father is now speaking through Jesus. And Philip's like, show me the Father. And the Father says through Jesus, I've been here this whole time in my son, and you still don't know me? You still haven't seen me? The one who has seen me, Jesus says, has seen the Father, truth. So how can you say, show us the Father, don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? They're abiding in each other. The words I speak, I'm not just speaking on my own. The Father who lives in me, he does these works. He speaks these words. And so believe in me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe on the works themselves. In other words, the truth of my very life, of my Father-centered God glorifying my words, my works, uh, the Father abiding in me. You already have enough basis to trust everything you need for eternal life, but there's still going to be more. You're going to see me ascend. You have all the truth that you need to confidently believe I'm the truth. I'm hope embodied. I'm your comfort in the face of death. I'm the one that you're to cling to in faith, not physically, but in faith. Hold on to, I'm the way, the truth. And then he also mentions, 
on the life. So another basis for belief, we're going to get into this next week, is Holy Spirit. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. What's the life? John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commands, yes. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor, a comforter, to be with you forever. And he is the spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him, but you do know him because he remains with you and will be in you. Now, this is interesting. You're now the Monet that God knows in by his spirit. That will bolster your faith. Not just what you'll see me do, make a way. Not just the reality of who I am, uh, I'm the truth, I'm the Father abiding in me and me and him. But now also, if the Spirit dwelling in you as a temple, if God knows in your Monet of your body, if that doesn't give you the assurance of the Spirit dwelling in you, of the life of God in your flesh, if that isn't enough to bring you comfort, what is? This is profound stuff. This is the master class lesson on hope. And I hope that this morning you hear Jesus' invitation to not let your heart be troubled, but to believe that he's made a way to God, that he's preparing a place, a monet, for you to men know for life in God's presence, that Jesus is the way to that place, and he gives us Holy Spirit as a deposit in us to remind us of our destiny of hope. Through faith, we gain access through belief to a great and glorious hope. Believe on me. Don't be troubled. Believe on me. That's the invitation for you. What's unique this morning is at your funeral, you will not have an opportunity to respond to that word. You'll already be dead. Your fate, your destiny will already be sealed. But this morning, because you were able to hear your funeral while you're still alive, you can take the preparations and, and, and do what's needed today so that you can dwell in the house of the Lord, in heaven itself, in the presence of God forever and ever. Will you believe? Though you die, yet shall you live. Do you believe on the resurrection of life? Do you believe? Is Jesus your hope? And I want to give you an opportunity to lay hold of hope this morning as we sing and do the service at the end of the service. If you're ready to lay hold of hope and give your life to Jesus, we want, to, we want him to clean and wash and, and ready you for your eternal hope. And uh, we want to help you take steps of faith. So there's tables in the back. I always am in the lobby. I just sit there. I'm just waiting, praying for somebody to say, hey, I want to get this taken care of. I want to be in the Father in Christ. If that's you this morning, this is your moment to respond. Dear Father, we don't get very many invitations like this. And this may be the final invitation. We never know how much time we have. And we don't say that manipulatively. We just say that our life is truly a flash and it flies by. And there's not time to keep kicking things down the road that we need to deal with today. And you say, believe on me. I'm your resurrection in life. May we believe on you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.